day in worship would redound to the glory of Christ. And it is for that purpose we gather. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. A couple of things will get started. First of all, I saw walking in uh, young Gino Forge. Is that right, Gino? You want to stand up? Gino is going to take over for Pastor Andre at the Place of Hope in Haiti, and he will be operating that that um, orphanage at such time as Pastor Andre lets go. <laughs> Pastor Andre, are you going to let go? Okay, someday. Now, Gino has with him a young lady, I think. Didn't I see you come in with a young lady? This is Gino's fiance. And they are going to be, when's the date, Gino? January 8th. That's coming up, and they're going to have a little um, shower here at this church. And so, Gino, we, uh, we play, pray your blessing on uh, you and your intended. And uh, ask God's blessing on you both going forward. Thank you very much. Uh, I also want to make a point of thanking uh, Pastor Patrick because he was in North Carolina, but he really wanted to be here last week with you. And so he flew down from North Carolina to preach and then to help with the hanging of the greens uh, and then turned around and left uh, having arrived at midnight on Saturday night, he left at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. I would call that a full day. <laughs> and so we want to make sure that we uh, thank Pastor Patrick for his uh, efforts on our behalf. So thank you very much for that. Uh, I wanted to start out by reading our scripture passage today. I don't always do that. Because typically I will I will read that passage in the course of the sermon, but today it's going to be rather disjointed. So uh, I'm going to start out by reading the passage, and it is one that's familiar, but it's also one in whose familiarity we find some comfort. And this is from Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Charles McGrath was an editor and a critic, a columnist for the New York Times. And he wrote an article about 20 years ago about the cultural decay and the part uh, that the use of irony in public discourse played in that decay of our culture. This was 20 years ago. And, and he was referring to both dramatic and comedic irony. And I thought it was somewhat humorous and ironic that he mentioned Seinfeld as being a particular culprit in that. I found the article to be unconvincing, though it was well-documented and well-attested, because I think that irony is a great vehicle for comedy, and it is good and helpful for emphasis and to drive home a point. Uh, For example... Now, I'm going to tell you a story that I've told you before. I think most of you have heard it. Some may not have, but it's going to help me make my point. So I'm going to repeat it. So, when my son Luke was six or seven years old, he liked playing video games with his friend Billy. When Billy would lose his turn, it was not uncommon for him to take the Lord's name in vain. Now, Carrie was very good at guarding her house against such behavior, and she observed to Billy that we didn't say that in this house. Billy was compliant and never again took the Lord's name in vain in our house. And then... Their friend Chris joined in the video games. And when Chris lost a turn, he took the Lord's name in vain. Billy then, Billy, mind you, turned to Chris and said, Hey, you can't say that here. Chris said, Why? God is not a bad word. Billy replied, Well, it is in this house. I never grow tired of that story. And it is funny. And it's funny in part because it's true. But it's also funny because what you expect and the reality of the situation are very much different. In this case, Billy was instructed not to take the Lord's name in vain because it was an honored name and should be treated reverently. The reality was much different. Billy thought that what we thought that God was a bad word. 
There was irony in that, and it made a point. That story makes a point to us. But dramatic irony can have the same effect, the effect of making a point uh, when expectations and reality don't match. Take, for instance, Romeo and Juliet, two young people in love. They wanted their love to go on forever, but because of the feud of their parents and more distant ancestors, their love, rather than going on forever, caused them to take their own lives together. Now, it made a memorable point by way of its irony. Past indiscretions, when visited on innocent generations who had no part in past indiscretions, and no frame of reference to understand them will end in tragedy. Shakespeare speaks to us from beyond the grave with his use of irony. Now, both these illustrations, one was comedic and one was tragic, but they underscore their respective points and drive home their point in a discreet but forceful way because of the use of irony. Now, I start here because in the narrative that we just read, it's a familiar narrative, and Dr. Luke will be able to make several points by use of irony, no thanks to Charles Chip McGrath, the New York Times, William Shakespeare, or Billy from across the street. In this brief passage, I counted no less than six ironies. Maybe you found more. But let me acknowledge as we approach this topic that often ironies are confused with paradox, conundrums, and antinomies. Some of what I may call ironies may actually be paradox, conundrums, or antinomies. Or they may be ironic paradox, or ironic conundrums, or ironic antinomies. But today, I ask for some leeway for this literary layman before you. Today, they, uh, they are all ironies as far as I'm concerned and as far as you're concerned. Uh, and, that, and that is that the reality of what uh, takes place in this passage doesn't match what we might expect. And so we look at these ironies. The first of these ironies is the irony of greatness. Uh, My eye went right to this. As I was preparing this passage, my eye went right down to verse 32. You could tell because what I am now referring to as the ironies of the incarnation started out as fear not, he will be great. And that's the reason why I have two different titles for that. this passage is because my eye immediately went to he will be great. And so we ask the question, how do you measure greatness? And I think it's a safe assumption that an angel, particularly Gabriel, is speaking the truth. The Bible tells us that angels were messengers from God. And since the messengers from God... Uh, spoke God's word, we know it's truth. And the angel said, he will be great. Now, the irony of this statement is that it is just 
about the polar opposite of what you would expect. It explodes popular conceptions or misconceptions of greatness. Because, you see, our culture consistently chooses charisma over character. And time and again, we're disappointed because of that. Even in church environments, people will often choose a very effervescent, charismatic pastor, even when there may be some question as to that pastor's character. Well, let's say significant uh, question as to their character. There's nothing wrong with having some charisma. But when we look at significant character flaws, um, overlook significant character flaws, in order to choose charisma, then we're guilty of facilitating and even perpetrating the flaws of the person in question. This is what Dr. James Alan Francis said about the greatness of Jesus. And he wrote this almost a century ago, 1926. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of those things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and go, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one Solitary life. Now we can preach sermons on the character qualities of Jesus, but the prophet Isaiah in the 7th century B.C., now this was 700 years before Jesus was born, described in that which Jesus' ironic greatness would exist. This is what Isaiah said. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 700 years before Jesus was born, this was written. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Some historians tell us that crucifixion was not invented until the 6th century B.C. This was 700 years before Jesus was born. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and the rich man in his, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for transgressors. And that single greatest act of this great one of which Isaiah spoke is that he surrendered. Jesus, the great one, gave up his life. In fact, he chose the worst kind of death, not just the cross, but hell itself for the benefit of his followers. This is not what we would expect. It is an ironic approach to greatness and leadership today. My researcher, Siri, tells me that in the last hundred years worldwide, those who name the name of Christ have quadrupled and globally two billion people now call themselves followers of Jesus, making, the Christ, making Christianity the largest of all religions in the world. Now, I would point out that that, uh, that number, two billion plus, that includes everybody who names the name of Christ. That includes Roman Catholicism, all the different Protestant religions, Orthodox Christianity. Uh, they're all kind of lumped in there together. And you could, you could argue with that number. But the point is that, that this one man, despised and rejected of man, ended up with now two billion followers. And inasmuch as Jesus' greatness uh, presents irony, Luke highlights it as a teaching tool. So I ask you today, how does this conception of greatness match up with your conception of greatness? That's the irony. The irony of greatness. Second, the irony of geography. Luke goes to pains, having thoroughly researched the matter, to tell us that Gabriel was sent to a city of Nazareth. Now, Luke didn't have to include that fact, but he did. And it's somewhat ironic that God would choose Nazareth as a place to, to find a young lady 
who would bear the Messiah. Here's what Luke um, records in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Uh, The expectation would be that Jesus would come from Bethlehem. He would be born there. And I'm going to let you, Pastor Patrick, tell you about that. Uh, or maybe, if not Bethlehem, then Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of Jewish religion and Jewish culture. But Nazareth? I want to reference a couple of verses in the Gospel of John to highlight this irony that Jesus would have roots in Nazareth. John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom the Messiah in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's certainly not what one would expect. Galilee, the region in which the city of Nazareth is, is uh, found, Galilee is referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles in both Isaiah and Matthew. And while it had a Jewish population, the majority of the population was Gentile. And one would not expect the Messiah to have Galilean roots. Inasmuch as Jesus' geographic roots presents irony, Luke highlights it as a teaching tool. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel would change his tune, and he became a follower of Jesus. He was all in. And in fact, Nathaniel died a martyr's death. Now, I wouldn't wish a martyr's death on anyone, but can you say that you have died to yourself and have wholeheartedly given yourself to be a follower of Jesus, even as has Nathaniel? The next irony is the irony of Gabriel. Gabriel is one of the very few angels that we learn his name. Only Michael, the archangel, is also named. Well, if you want to count Lucifer... He's named too, but I don't count him in. Some conclude that Gabriel was also an archangel, but it is never stated as such in the Bible, so we're suspicious of that. But certainly Gabriel held a high rank among the angelic host. And what one would expect is that Gabriel would announce the coming of the long-expected Jesus to maybe Nicodemus, who was a highly regarded Pharisee, or to Caiaphas, the high priest, or even to King Herod, who had some Jewish roots. But the reality is that Gabriel went to Mary. I called her a young lady before. We don't really know her age, but today we would call her a girl. Some suggest she was as young as 12, which, while culturally appropriate in the day, uh, may have been a stretch. More likely, she was an early teen, a youngster by any reckoning. Mary was the recipient, so perhaps we would expect one of the, mm, call them enlisted angels, one of the troops to make the announcement instead of the leader, Gabriel. Um, In Revelation, we're told that, that there are millions of angels, so we wouldn't necessarily expect one of the head angels to make such a trip to a teenage girl. Inasmuch as Gabriel's selection as the bearer of the good news presents irony, Luke goes to pains 
to mention Gabriel by name and so uses it as a teaching tool. Are you guilty of the soft tyranny of low expectations? Do you despise small things and small beginnings? Are you dismissive of potentiality without accomplishment? Fourth irony, the irony of greeting. Throughout the scriptures, God's presence with us is a most remarkable blessing and a source of peace and joy and comfort. Uh, Pastor Patrick pointed out to us concerning the transition from Moses to Joshua that God promised his presence would be with Joshua. He said, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah said virtually the same thing to the people of God. In Isaiah 41.10, Rachel read read it earlier. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will uphold you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And when Jesus was born, Matthew says of Jesus, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Jesus. They call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. But when Gabriel comes to Mary, here is how Luke records the exchange. And Gabriel said to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by the saying. Here an angel, and not just any angel, but Gabriel, one of the leading angels, came to Mary and assures her of God's presence with her. But she is troubled. It is not that what you'd expect, but it's the reality of the meaning. So Luke highlights this by the use of irony. And because it presents irony, it's a teaching tool. How do you regard God's claim on your life? Have you put your faith and trust in what Jesus has done for the forgiveness of our sins? On a subjective level, are you avoiding what God perhaps is calling you to do in your heart? And on a more objective uh, level, are you living in defiance of God's clear biblical instruction? Well, there's more. But for time, I'm not going to elaborate. What I would say is this. Several of you have told me that you don't start listening to the sermon until you hear the words, what is the takeaway? (laughs) For you, I have good news. You have a rather short sermon today. So what is the takeaway? Two things. First, for nothing is impossible with God. And second, Oh, come, let us adore him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the use of irony to make your points. And oh, how they've been made over the years. God, our prayer is that we would follow you as Nathaniel did, that we would be all in, believing in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we conclude our service by singing together, we light a thousand candles. Stand with me as we sing.
And now would you receive God's benediction for it is now unto Jesus who is able to keep you from falling. It's now unto Jesus who is able to present you before his glorious presence, spotless and with great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, power, honor, and dominion, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.